The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Five. It is obviously the biggest test of public opinion before the next general election. The rancid disillusion amongst many of my readers, Telegraph readers, not just wanting to not vote for the Conservatives anymore, but pining for their evisceration. The fact we've had seven consecutive months of inflation in double digits does suggest there's something pretty strange going on that we haven't witnessed in decades. The coronation is neatly timed to move on swiftly from any shockingly bad results. One. We have lift off. Welcome once again to Planet Normal, a Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. The coronation's looming. And on Saturday, Alison, while a fair few thousand will line the procession route in person, cheering on the newly crowned King Charles... Millions more will watch the pageantry on the telly. The last coronation was in 1953, of course, when the late Queen Elizabeth was crowned at the tender age of 27. This weekend, King Charles will be 74, and while there will be barbecues and street parties and the world will be watching the pomp and circumstance that Britain does so well, the monarchy does seem a little tired. Before that, it's the local election, with millions of voters going to the polls on Thursday, at the day Planet Normal's released, with more than 8,000 council seats across England up for grabs. Or maybe it won't be so many millions, because turnout's expected to be low, in part due to the new voter ID requirements. We're a bit constrained in terms of what we can say, Alison, because of what journalists call the RPA, the Representation of the People's Act, which means we can't comment in an overly partisan fashion, given that this Planet Normal episode is being released as the election's happening. But I think it's fair to say we both think the Tories will be losing an awful lot of council seats. What's your latest prediction? Well, I don't know if you're going to be very pleased about this or not. Belma <laughs> has been doing some local election swatting. No! <laughs> so if you have a cup of tea to make... Put the orange roll neck away! <laughs> I'm afraid the thick specs are on. (laughs) But I did think it was worth reflecting on this because we can see the elections as an interesting pointer to what will happen at the general election. Now, we know, Copilot, don't we, that the political parties will be cherry-picking the most favourable data from today's results. The Conservatives are still the largest party of local government. They're defending the most seats. Now, as you said at the top, they might well lose seats because the opinion polls have them below 30%, which is lower than where they were in 2019 when the Tories lost 1,300 seats. Remember that Theresa May catastrophe and she had to go not long after, didn't she? So in 2019, the Tories and Labour got 31% each of the national votes. If the Conservatives were to go below 30% today and Labour was above 40%, that means there's a large swing from Conservative to Labour since four years ago. Now, Copilot, if you haven't dozed off. I'm here. This is crucial, okay? So Labour in opposition has always had to get over 40% of the vote in the local election before they went on to form a government. You've noticed before the Conservatives have been managing expectations by saying they could lose a 1,000 seats. Now, I reckon if they can keep those losses between 500 and 700 seats, they'll give a huge 
sigh of relief. However, we've got the Liberal Democrats coming up on the rails, and I suspect we could see them doing rather well in true blue conservative heartlands. I've said this before on the podcast, I don't think there is a safe Tory seat in the country anymore. And Labour, of course, is also cunningly managing expectations in the other direction. Labour saying a good result for them would be gaining 400 seats. That's absolute nonsense. Labour's currently at 43% in the polls, and 400 seats would be a major disappointment. They really need to do a lot better than that, given what they need to achieve to win the general election. And this, I think I'm just going to come to the end now, really. But Labour is very keen to avoid comparisons with the local elections in 1995, when you'll remember, Liam, Tony Blair was leader and Labour got a stonking 47% of national vote share compared to the Conservatives on 25%, an absolutely huge gap. And Labour then went on to win a landslide. And in 2024, I think this is the key point, Keir Starmer's Labour requires a swing even greater than Tony Blair managed in 1997. And that swing still remains a record. So today, tonight, tomorrow, if we see Labour in these 2023 local elections doing a lot worse than Labour did in those same local elections in 1995, that will be an indicator that they are going to struggle to ace the next general election. So Planet Normal listeners, keep an eye on it. If the Conservatives drop below 30% of vote share today, they could still avoid the landslide scenario of 1997. But they do really need now to be within touching distance of Labour, not a long way behind as they are. And, co-pilot, they are running out of time to catch up. Here endeth Velma's local elections research. And we'd have succeeded if it wasn't for you pesky kids. It's the fairground operator. <laughs> I've done the Scooby noise. <laughs> did you learn anything from that? Yeah, I did. I also sensed that you're backing away from your earlier prediction that they're going to lose 1,300 seats when I said 1,000. You don't expect me to forget that. So where are you now? Are you near 1,000 or are you near 1,300? Have we got a tenor on it? I don't think they're going to do brilliantly. And I also think that the coronation is neatly timed to move on swiftly from any shockingly bad results that they'll be well pleased that it's all going to be golden carriages rather than how terribly they've done in Isha and Epsom, I think. I'm sticking with my thousand seat loss prediction. And, mm. and I actually, if we could change our predictions, which we can't because we've got a tenor on it, yeah. then I'd say maybe nearer... 900 seats. Mm. It's worth saying that in 2019, Northern Ireland voted too. Northern Ireland isn't voting today. It's voting later in the month. So we're really only going to get a proper comparison with 2019 later on in May after those Northern Ireland council elections as well. All the councils in Northern Ireland are up for grabs. It is obviously the biggest test of public opinion before the next general election. Mm. I think the next general election will probably be in the autumn of 2024. So as you say, 18 months at most. But I still think that it's very much in the balance who wins this general election, particularly with the economy on the move. If we can climb on top of this inflation problem, if inflation goes strongly into double digits, when the figures are released later this month, and we'll talk about that more later, mm. then I do think you could get a kind of 
cumulative effect of better news begetting better news as Labour really grapple with a lot of the culture wars issues which are hugely splitting their party. I think Keir Starmer has done a good job behind the scenes of taming the outer reaches of the hard left in his Labour Party. Mm. But I'll return to the point, the Labour front bench is a lot more left-wing than the Labour front bench was under Tony Blair. There's a lot of people on that front bench who will scare a lot of ordinary voters. They may give them the benefit of the doubt in local elections. Uh, The Lib Dems, obviously, local election specialists, they will make many gains. But I don't think these local election results will translate necessarily into general election results because of the timing. The general election is later, by which time the economy should be a lot better than it currently is. And also because they're just different competitions by definition. I do think the turnout will be low, Alison. I do think there'll be a lot of controversy about a low turnout because a lot of people will be turning up to polling stations to vote and they won't have the necessary ID to do so. And I do think that is a problem. I do think the Tories have introduced this in a bit of a cack-handed way, laying themselves open to accusations that the young in particular won't have the ID and younger people disproportionately don't vote Tory. So I do think there's going to be some controversy. And I say this with regret because we're pretty good at conducting elections in the UK most of the time. And so I'm concerned that the sort of integrity of the election process will be undermined in the days following this set of local elections. They do have voter ID already, don't they, in Northern Ireland? So it doesn't seem to me to be an unreasonable request. I think there's some jiggery pokery going on in Labour. I'm not going to expand on that, but listeners will may be able to guess what I'm alluding to. This is a rare point of disagreement between us co-pilots. Well, I'm right about the local election results and you're wrong. <laughs> no, I think your predictions for the general election. You wish you'd predicted my thousand seats. You know you overegged it on 1300. Just admit it. All the listeners know. Just admit it. <laughs> God, if I'm wrong, I'm going to get done in now, aren't I? Yeah, yeah. What does a tenner get us at the King's Arms now? I mean, will it get us a G&T and a pint and a packet of pork scratchings? I don't think it will, will it, anymore? But anyway, no, I've said all along the rancid disillusion amongst many of my readers, Telegraph readers, not just wanting to not vote for the Conservatives anymore, but pining for their evisceration. I've never, ever known the sentiment to be so bad. Mm. They are absolutely furious, hacked off. They feel betrayed. They feel they just get chucked a bit of red meat every so often to keep them quiet. They don't see any Conservative policies being enacted except under huge pressure. So I think that that Rishi Sunak is going to have to pull off a miracle to persuade them back into the fold. And I think that they will not vote for other people. But what we've seen in previous by-elections is we've seen the Conservatives staying home. We saw that in Tiverton and Honiton. I would be amazed if the people that I've been hearing from will meekly go back and lend the Tories their vote again. I think we're going to see an absolute rupture in the Conservative Party. I think we will be looking at a split and I think it'll be very interesting to see whether it's Suella or Kemi who come out of the pack to lead that new, more right of centre Conservative Party with some Conservative values. But, you know, could be wrong. So voters will stay at home in their droves today. We agree on that. Mm. What do you think about Saturday? Was the Palace right to make the procession route a lot shorter 
<laughs> than previous big scale royal events. The palace is a bit worried or has been a bit worried, we can surmise, yeah. about the numbers turning out to be smaller. Certainly I've been knocking around Buckingham Palace earlier today and a lot of people are down there. People are starting to camp out. Mm-hmm. The hardcore, uh, real enthusiastic monarchists, people who've grown up with the royal family over many, many years, they're definitely down there. And of course the event will be beautifully executed as it always is. But think back to 1953, Alison, mm. which I evoked in the, the Britain of mm. full skirts and polka dot dresses and just a few tellies in the country, less than two million and people crowding round and, you know, massive street parties. Was I unfair to say the monarchy feels a bit tired? I think it would be fair to say that there's going to be far less upsurge of popular sentiment for this monarch, that the Elizabeth in 1953, Princess Elizabeth as she was, was 27. It Mm. was an extraordinary romantic picture of this young woman literally having this heavy weight put on her head. In fact, she said many, many years later that she had to keep her head very upright, because if you bent your neck, the crown would break it. And I think that image carries so much symbolism. I mean, Mm. it's quite a tough call now, isn't it? Because we look at that footage of 1953, and it feels like a lost ancient world. There's been a huge decline in deference. The class system is much less powerful, thank goodness. I mean, money and merit are now more important than hereditary titles. And I think, Liam, the difficulty that each new monarch faces is coming up with a coronation that fits the time. So King Charles has hacked back the number of dukes and invited Anton Deck, the new dukes, Dukes of Hazard. <laughs> that was Bone Luke. It's one of my best pub trivia questions, by the way. Who played Uncle Jesse in the Dukes of Hazard? <laughs> who you did? got this? Denver Pyle. <laughs> it's, it's up there with who played Huggy Bear in uh, Starsky and Hutch. That was Antonio Fargus. Yes, it was. I think I You know it's right. You can see it on the screen, right? Yeah, I can see it on the screen. You're (laughs) wasted on us, aren't you? I know, I know. So Ant and Deck are going to be there. Ant and Deck are going to be there, and it's going to be much more representatives from the charity sector. Quite rightly, there'll be young people who've done well from King Charles's Prince's Trust. There'll be social workers. It'll be much more sort of ethnically diverse. A lot of people, he he very much wanted to have representatives of other faiths there. I mean, look, people will always find fault, but I will be writing about this at great speed for the Telegraph on Saturday. And I've been doing some prep, Liam, and I think it is very interesting to go back. I've been going back and reading this book by Roy Strong called Coronation, A History of the British Monarchy. I read it so you don't have to. And there are people going back as far as the 17th, 18th century. One critic said about the coronation of William IV, compounded of the worst dregs of popery and feudalism. So people have always been carping, but you'll love this. This is my favourite bit in the whole of this vast book. So it was the coronation of Edward VII in 1902, Queen Victoria's son. He'd been a very, very naughty boy, hadn't he, Liam? And on the guest list, amidst all these dignitaries and people, ambassadors and so on, chairmen of county councils, which had only recently been set up. So Edward had also been, like Charles, trying to move with the times, better reflecting the Britain of his time. But amidst all these uh, distinguished representatives was something called the loose box in which sat Edward's female friends. (laughs) 
He was dirty Bertie, wasn't he? <laughs> he was dirty. Can you imagine something called the loose box at Charles's coronation in which the various old flames sit there? Look, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I am a monarchist. I think I was more of an Elizabethist, if I'm perfectly honest. Yeah. The Queen was so impeccable in that role that she saw off the Republicans for two or three generations. Whether Charles can do that is open to question. He's 74. He's had a lot of time expressing opinions, which I have to say that many of the monarchists who read are paper are not entirely comfortable with. We've got some emails to that effect later on. But the monarchy does continue to maintain a hold on the public imagination, which defies rational explanation. And there was a poll on the royals this week by Lord Ashcroft, which said that well over half the United Kingdom said it would vote for a constitutional monarchy, less than a quarter against. And I think this is really interesting, Liam, this finding Two-thirds agreed with the statement, the royal family might seem a strange system in this day and age, but it works. Now, that's terribly intriguing, isn't it? That's something that we probably don't want to think about the irrationality too much. We're a monarchy combined with a democracy. In a way, it shouldn't really work, but it bumbles along nicely, I think. And I think generally people will wish Charles well on Saturday. But I think that there are some question marks about how he conducts himself from now on. He's not a politician. He's not a president. He has to follow the example of his mother, I think. I think there's a lot in that. It's a wonderfully British paradox. We would vote for a monarchy and you wouldn't invent the monarchy if you didn't have it. You wouldn't introduce it. But a lot like, in my view, the UK itself, the Act of Union, it's a very complicated system that's evolved, but it does kind of work and it has proved to be, for the most part, remarkably stable for many, many years. It's interesting, though, I do think they're over-egging it and you touched on this in your column, we'll put the link in the show notes to this episode, it is a bit much to expect people to sort of stand to attention watching the telly and pledge an oath of allegiance. I think a lot of people will feel that, you know, Charles has waited for this for a long time and he's sort of quite a nice bloke. Interestingly, Russell Crowe, who's no monarchist, you know, Maximus, uh, the master and commander, he tweeted a series of views in which he said that when he's met Prince Charles in the past, he's been intelligent, he's been sensitive, he literally called him a good bloke. He says, I'm not a monarchist, I'm, I'm an Australian. And of course, the monarchy is a lot less popular in Australia than it was. But he bothered to tweet that Charles is a decent guy. And I do think there's a sense that, you know, obviously his, he's never going to be as popular as Diana and he's never going to be as popular as his mum. But he is now in a relationship where he is clearly in love and people like to see that after all the difficulties. He's clearly got a lot on his plate dealing with his quite difficult son in many ways, though opinions may be mixed on that. But why are they asking people to pledge this oath of allegiance? That does seem to be a bit too much, and I think you agree. I think it was going to be called homage of the people, I swear that I will pay true allegiance to your majesty and to your heirs and successors according to law, so help me God. And I read that and I just absolutely cringed. I mean, that's something out of a sort of Robin Hood movie where they're all Flynn (laughs) jumping out the trees and little John, you know. It's just ridiculous. Hi there, my liege, isn't it really? 
Crikey. The best line ever in any history film. Men of the Middle Ages, welcome to the Hundred Years' War. Which is, <laughs> But it is definitely men of the Middle Ages. Yeah, I think we leave that kind of guff to the Americans, don't we? And I, I felt that apparently it came from Justin Welby. No surprises there. I mean, I just thought it was a handing a gift to the Republicans. You know, you could... Picture the joy at Channel 4 News when they realised they could show footage of viewers staring silently at the screen with the caption, people snub new monarch. I've got some doubts about this. I mean, he's very, very keen on modernising, slimming down the monarchy. But you do have to be careful that you don't lose you know, what people love about it. I, I'm I'm not sure that this ooh, cost of living crisis, they're spending 100 million. I'm not sure that's how people feel. People don't mind. I think Charles thinks that people mind toffs. I don't think ordinary British people mind toffs. I think they quite like them and they, they enjoy the eccentricity. And I found this really good line, which was from the late Anthony Sampson in his very good book, Anatomy of Britain. And Sampson says, once you touch the trappings of monarchy, like opening an Egyptian tomb, the inside is liable to crumble. So beware the bicycling monarchy, because they may soon knock you off. For the first time in 70 years, the United Kingdom and indeed the world are preparing for the coronation of a British monarch. But what do we know about the role, function and character of our new king? It's clear to me that he absolutely understands the difference between being Prince of Wales and being king. I don't think that any monarch has come to the throne so well prepared as this one. When I had to meet with His Majesty and I heard him speak about what matters to him, I was profoundly moved and thought, I have to spend a chunk of my career helping that mission. I think his secret ingredient is genuinely enjoying meeting everyone. I'm Simon Heffer, and this is Being the King, coming soon from The Telegraph. And now on to our latest Planet Normal guest. We need to talk about inflation. And that's why I'm delighted to welcome the economist Stephen King onto the rocket of right thinking, because he's just written a book with exactly that title. In We Need to Talk About Inflation, Stephen, a former chief economist at the global banking giant HSBC, highlights key lessons from the history of inflation from ancient Rome through to the American Civil War and the present day. Why has the UK and much of the rest of the Western world been enduring this cost of living crisis with inflation in double digits for months? And when will inflation decisively fall? I started by asking Stephen King to put the UK's current inflation rate, 10.1% in March, in historic context. Well, Liam, it's certainly serious compared with what we've witnessed over the last 30 years or so. We've been through this extraordinary period of low and stable inflation. And I think the majority of economists and most people at the Bank of England thought that this kind of period of low and stable inflation was going to continue. And what we've been through over the last two or three years has been, I would describe as a pretty big wake-up call. So we're not quite back to where we were in the 1970s. I mean, if you go back to the peak inflation rate back then on one particular measure, it was 26.9%. So you know, we've avoided that. 
But at the same time, the fact we've had seven consecutive months of inflation in double digits does suggest there's something pretty strange going on that we haven't witnessed in decades. And for that, it seems to me that requires some kind of explanation. What's more to blame, Stephen? Lingering lockdowns, supply chain issues or the war in Ukraine? Well, they're both important in the sense that inflation would be lower without them than it has been with them. But it's not enough to explain what's actually happened. First of all, inflation was surprising on the upside, both in the US and on this side of the Atlantic. Probably end 2020, beginning of 2021, so a full year before Putin invades Ukraine. So inflation was already a problem. Secondly, when it comes to supply-side shocks associated with the pandemic, what started off as a series of localized price shocks in the form of higher semiconductor prices, higher secondhand car prices, spreads through the course of 2021 and beyond to a wider range of goods, and then into services, and then into wages. And it's true that real wages adjusted for inflation are falling, but nominal wages, which matter for price stability, have picked up. So you've got a whole range of indicators now, which are suggesting that inflation is much more deeply embedded than was the case at the beginning of the pandemic, and certainly in the immediate aftermath of Putin's invasion of Ukraine. So it seems to me there's something going on beyond these two big external shocks. And it seems to me that one explanation for that is that monetary policy was loosened too much and then left too loose for far too long after we came out of the pandemic itself. Indeed, throughout 2020 and well into 2021, some economists, myself included, we were warning inflation was coming. We were warning the Bank of England should be raising interest rates early. So, of course, they'd need to go up by less overall. A sitch in time saves nine, if you like. Yet as late as November 2021, UK inflation was already above 5%, a 30-year high. The bank dismissed all warnings and said inflation was transitory. They kept using that word. Why did they get it so wrong? I think it's partly they believe their own propaganda. Uh, one of the peculiar things about inflation forecasts from central banks, and the Bank of England is not unique here, is that their forecasts are based on a, a kind of weird premise, which is the idea that so long as they have an inflation target, so long as they have the mechanisms to achieve that target, and so long as the public believe that they will use those mechanisms, um, then they are completely credible. This sort of model of inflation has no room for monetary mistakes. It has no room for external shocks. It has no room for the idea that the public can lose their faith in the central bank itself. So I think what's actually happened is that many of the things that central bankers used to look at, like, for example, monetary growth, uh, were completely ignored. And although the warning signs were there, there were a series of red flags, if you like, flying, there was such a sense that inflation could not possibly return, and perhaps even worse, that the only thing we were faced with was deflation. Even when inflation did start to rise, it was almost intellectually impossible for policymakers to imagine this could be a return to the kinds of problems we last saw in the 1970s and 1980s. Isn't the intellectual impossibility is that because they won't let their minds go there, Stephen, when people like you and I were warning that a big inflation was going to happen? Isn't what's really going on here? We're both very experienced people. We've both worked in financial services. Isn't what is really going on here is central bankers in the UK, the US, the Eurozone, they're just scared of financial markets. They're scared that unless they keep printing money, unless we keep having quantitative easing, unless they keep 
interest rates as low as they possibly can, that financial markets are going to rebel. There's going to be some kind of big correction. Well, there's an element of that. You know, central banks now have multiple objectives. It's not just a case of achieving price stability. It's also a case of achieving financial stability. In some cases, there's an influence of green finance, making sure that the assets you buy in terms of QE include green assets of one kind or another. There are some central banks who are tasked to try to maximize growth or minimize employment. All these things are there. But I would suggest that central banks ideally should be, if you like, sticking to their knitting and focusing on price stability more than anything else. And as soon as they stray from that, there is potential for problems to arise. QE has a very peculiar effect on bond markets and nationalization that effectively the central bank is out there buying gilts or whatever. This is the central bank creating money from nothing and using it to directly or indirectly buy the government's debt. Correct. Yes. So effectively, you've got this exchange going on. And what effectively is designed to do is to lower guilt yields, borrowing costs you know, across the maturity spectrum. So from overnight money through to, to 30 years or 50 years or whatever it might be. And the hope through QE was that by lowering these yields, it would encourage investors to not buy gilts, but instead buy riskier assets like the stock market, for example. Um, and the hope was that if you did that, then stock prices would rise, which would then encourage companies to raise funds through capital markets, rather than raising them via the banking system, which of course, after the global financial crisis was rather weaker than it had been previously. The problem, however, is that if you buy up an awful lot of gilts, you're kind of distorting the gilt price. And it also means you're distorting gilt yields, you're basically distorting interest rates further out the so called yield curve. And the problem with doing that is that you effectively are abolishing your early warning system for inflation. Because traditionally, what happens is that if you have the first hint of inflation, investors will sell bond markets, become more nervous about the possibility of inflation, demand a higher yield on their government bond investments than they had previously, as the yields would rise. But if the central bank itself is the main buyer of these pieces of paper, then yields can't rise. It's the equivalent of effectively turning off your radar system because you think that there are going to be no more enemy bombing raids. So the next bombing raid that comes along, you completely miss because you've no longer got the radar system. And I think the same is true of inflation. If you assume inflation is not going to be a problem evermore, then fine, do QE. But it also means that if inflation does return, you're very slow to spot it. And that, I think, is exactly what's happened over the course of the last two or three years. Isn't effectively what we're talking about here, Stephen King, that the Bank of England, by creating so much new money, much of which has found its way into bond markets, into share prices, they've blown a huge asset price bubble. A lot of very well-connected people in the city and elsewhere have got very rich. The government's been able to borrow lots of money more cheaply than it otherwise would, kicking the can down the road as politicians like to do. We've set ourselves up for some kind of nasty correction. I'm not saying this is 2008 again, but financial markets are clearly extremely shaky. As early as 2013, Andy Haldane, when he was at the Bank of England, was saying we're in danger of blowing the biggest bond market bubble in history. And of course, lateral thinkers like him found that they couldn't stay at the Bank of England because there was so much groupthink. Well, I think there has been quite a lot of groupthink. And I think that actually the book describes some issues about groupthink and perhaps the appointments process for the Monetary Policy Committee. Nevertheless, I think there has been some groupthink. And I think the people who've questioned the wisdom of policies pursued over the last few years have, have been frowned upon. Not just policymakers, national newspaper columnists too, by the way. The problem here, of course, is that the more people that criticise, the bigger is the risk that the Bank of England's credibility 
is damaged and its credibility is the only thing that really matters in terms of its view of how inflation and inflation expectations are formed. So if people like you and me are criticizing, it sort of undermines their inflation model. And if people believe what we're saying rather than what they're saying, their inflation model is undermined even more. So that becomes a problem. But it becomes a bigger problem, of course, if inflation then persistently surprises on the upside, which is exactly what's happened over the last two or three years. But going back to this issue of you know, financial bubble blowing. I think that there has been a problem. And the problem in one sense can be described as follows, that asset prices have risen. They have been supported. In the early stages of COVID, when the economy was collapsing, stock markets were absolutely booming, which seems a bit odd, but of course, it's partly explained by this. But what hasn't happened over the last 10 years is that the money going into asset markets, it hasn't transformed itself into, if you like, money going into the real economy. Because of course, over this period of time, economic growth has been disappointingly weak. I think one of the big issues that has cropped up over this period is that, you know, people have focused a lot on trying to reinvigorate growth through monetary stimulus or fiscal stimulus. But I think that one of the biggest problems with the UK economy and also other economies is very, very poor productivity performance. This is basically output per hour or output per head. And it's a measure effectively of how we use our resources in the most productive way. And really, the UK, more perhaps than other countries, has struggled with the idea of supporting productivity growth. You go back to the 1980s and 1990s, productivity growth was strong. It was strong under Thatcher, under Major, under Blair. But really, I would say, particularly since the global financial crisis, it's been very, very disappointing. So you can blow as much sort of money into the financial system as you might like. But unless it actually transforms productivity growth, all you're doing is making some people wealthier, while others, one way or another, are becoming poorer. Do you agree, Stephen, that pre-COVID quantitative easing and post-COVID quantitative easing are completely different. And the latter is much more inflationary. This is a point I made to the House of Lords Economic Affairs Select Committee because post-COVID QE, precisely on the point that you just mentioned, it didn't stay in the financial system like pre-COVID QE. It didn't just go into stock and bond markets and expensive houses in areas where people who work in the city live. It actually was used directly to pay for furlough, to pay for CBIL loans, those business support loans during lockdown. It went directly into the bank accounts of firms and households. And that's at least part of the reason why the massive expansion of quantitative easing we've had since lockdown has been inflationary. But the pre-lockdown quantitative easing over a much longer period of time was a lot less inflationary. Do you think there's something in that? I do. If you go back to 2010, when QE really properly came through, um, it's fair to say that there were some monetarists out there who were warning of imminent inflation, and they were wrong. Effectively, initially, when QE was done, it was an attempt to replace what I would loosely describe as, as private money with public money. Private money is sort of stuff that we treat as being money during the good times, but we want to avoid like the plague during bad times. So pre the global financial crisis, you had lots of things that, particularly in the financial system, felt like money. So collateralized debt obligations and all these ghastly things that felt like money because they were very, very liquid. After the GFC, no one wanted to touch the stuff with a barge pole. So you had to basically replace private money with public money because if you didn't do it, you'd end up with a sort of 1930s type depression. So I think QE initially was absolutely the right thing to do. 
Two problems with that. The first is that it continued for far longer than was originally intended because every central banker out there wanted to fight deflation at all costs. I mean, this whole fighting deflation thing, it was a bit of an alibi, wasn't it? There were massive vested interests that wanted more QE in government and in financial services. Well, I, I think there was a fear of deflation that was overdone. I, you know, I, I think one can distinguish between good and bad deflation. The bad deflation is sort of Keynesian-type 1930s deflation, where prices fall, wages fall, interest rates can't go below zero. So you end up with a messy situation where you begin to get what's called debt deflation, sort of downward spiral in the economy, which is what we saw. So Japanese-style disease of the early 1990s. Yeah, mass unemployment, mass bankruptcies, all the stuff associated with that kind of nasty debt deflation that we saw back in the 1930s. Well, we, we haven't really, you know, seen that. And in many ways, you might argue that some of the deflation that we tried to avoid was actually what I describe as good deflation, because it's associated with globalization, with cheap imports coming through from China, from India, and so on and so forth. And what arguably should have happened is that prices should have been allowed to fall relative to wages and relative to profits. So in a sort of real sense, we'd all be better off. But what central banks were terrified was the sort of 1930s type debt deflation. So they tried desperately to avoid falling prices where they could. In the process of doing that, they sort of encouraged so-called domestically generated inflation. But they also, as you quite rightly say, Liam, they also encouraged big increases in asset prices and asset price bubbles of one kind or another. Now, post the pandemic, I think you're right, partly that the link between monetary and fiscal policy has become uncomfortably close. You know, huge increases in government debt supported arguably by central bank policies. So the central bank's effectively buying the government's debt in layman's terms. Yeah, they're making it easier for the government to borrow more than they would normally do. And I describe this in the book as the um, Richard Burton, Elizabeth Taylor problem. <laughs> you, you recall that <laughs> in the 1960s, of course, you had this glamorous Hollywood couple getting married. They got married, they got divorced, they got married, they got divorced again. And they discovered, actually, that the day before Burton died, he wrote a final love letter to Elizabeth Taylor, which allegedly uh, she took to her grave when she died. The point about this is that sometimes the relationship is on and off, and we've been through 20 or 30 years of monetary and fiscal policy being separate from each other, but I think they have combined again, just like Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor combined from time to time. Uh, and And the consequence has been perhaps that monetary policy has been left a little too lax, a little bit too loose for too long, and also that it's too closely connected with fiscal policy. So none of this stuff historically is good news in terms of price stability. And it is worth noting also that if you look at government debt, a lot of people say these days, well, it doesn't really matter that much so long as interest rates are low. But that's sort of an obvious point because you know, if the central bank is enabling rates to be low, then it makes, much, it makes it much easier to fund large amounts of government debt. But the important point here is that we've seen a very big increase in government debt in the UK and elsewhere over the last 10, 15 years and normally that only happens during wartime. And wartime is normally associated with inflation. And the point about that is that if you have a central bank that appears to be in the process of making it easier for government to borrow, then effectively you're rewarding the debtor through high inflation, but at the cost of the creditor who might be the pensioner who has a sort of lump of cash savings in the bank, or you know someone else who has you know, relatively unsophisticated financial investments and is very dependent on cash savings to keep them going through their life. Let's just bring it back to bread and butter issues, Stephen, if I may. Wholesale energy prices are much, much lower than last summer, lower, in fact, than before the war in Ukraine. Food prices on global markets have been falling 
for 13 months in a row. And yet food price inflation is still soaring. Energy bills have yet to come down. Do you think there's some profiteering going on across the UK economy? Well, Liam, there might be, but I, I'm a little bit cautious on this argument, not so much because of the UK, but rather because of the US, where there's been a big debate about this over the last two or three years. If you go back and think about the profit share within the economy in the US, it's very, very high now. And people have said, well, look, this proves there's profiteering, that people have taken advantage of the pandemic to shut up prices. Now, there may be some truth in that. The catch, though, is that the profit share within the US economy has been rising for the last 20 years or so consistently. And for most of that period, it's been very low inflation rather than very high inflation. So the the tricky thing here is trying to explain not so much what's happened over the last two years, but rather the previous 18 years. Now, part of this is is a productivity story. Partly it's a technology story. In fact, probably it's more the latter than the former. Technology has effectively allowed companies to control their labor costs better than might have been the case in the past. So you think about, say, Uber drivers or Deliveroo people or whatever, you know, they're, they're effectively in an auction all the time. They're being sort of paid for by the hour, but also what they do during the course of the hour, how, how many deliveries do they make, how many rides do they provide, uh, how quickly do they drive or cycle, whatever might be the case. And I think that technology has, has changed that relationship between labor and capital. Now, as far as the last two or three years are concerned, the opportunity to raise prices is only because monetary conditions are too loose in the first place. And if it turns out that you know companies have an opportunity to raise prices because their bargaining position within the economy is better for the time being than labor, it's more likely that prices will rise than wages will rise. Now, back in the 1970s, you might say it's different because back then, uh, unions have more power, labor have more power. So you know, in some cases, wages were rising more quickly than prices. The central point here is that unless you have the right monetary conditions, then the chances are that someone will be able to get away with bigger price increases that would otherwise have been the case. So I'm afraid to say that we come back again to the stance of monetary policies, the level of interest rates and whether they rose speedily enough over the last year or two. And my conclusion is that that's the root cause of all this. It's not necessarily the profiteering of individual companies. Well, Stephen King, you've done a great job in this book and indeed in this interview of explaining complex issues in a clear, straightforward way. Thanks a lot for coming on Planet Normal. Thanks, Liam. So there you have it, Alison. You have very much an establishment economist, if I can describe Stephen King like that, who is more than willing to really criticise the Bank of England Mm. in no uncertain terms. And I think he deserves congratulations for that. There is now a pretty dim view of the Bank of England, even among more sort of mainstream economists. Obviously, yours truly has been writing Yes. Flem-flecked columns about the Bank of England for, <laughs> for more than two years now, but no one will thank me for that. <laughs> it strikes me, though, that history will judge the MPC, the bank governor, Andrew Bailey, to have been astonishingly complacent. And there are growing calls for less groupthink on the Monetary Policy Committee. Mm. It's a hugely important organisation. When it was first set up, in 1997. To Gordon Brown's credit, actually, there was a lot of diversity, proper cognitive diversity on the committee. You had, during those early days, economists who aren't household names, people like Willem Boiter, Deanne Julius, Sushil Wadwani. But within financial markets and within economics, they are very heterodox thinkers. They are willing to 
argue against conventional wisdom and come up with good reasons why they're right. And we've had none of that on the MPC for years and years and years. We've just had Treasury appointed people, the Treasury have completely taken over the appointments process. And we've had endless samey, samey economists who never say boo to a goose. And that was the problem. We did have Andy Haldane, who somehow managed to become the chief economist of the Bank of England. And Andy can speak for himself. But I think a lot of us feel that he was a very, very valuable lateral thinker who should have become the governor of the Bank of England, should have been listened to. He was warning about inflation months and months and months before MPC members. And now, of course, he's left the Bank of England, which I think is a great loss. I thought Stephen King was a very lucid and compelling speaker. I have to say, co-pilot, I think it's a couple of years of tuition at the right hand of Halligan has made me be able to understand some of what he was saying. And I thought one of the most interesting admissions was that the Bank of England had believed their own propaganda, as you say, this bedeviled by groupthink. Strong words. And that the models or whatever they're using didn't take into account external shocks or changes in public sentiment. I mean, that seems absolutely astonishing. And you know what? I think it just really depresses me now when we look around at supposedly highly intelligent people whose decisions have a huge impact on the price of a basket of shopping, you know, actual real people's lives, that these people are just not up to the job. And I saw recently, I don't think I you probably heard my screech of horror, but this chap, Hugh Pill, now the chief economist of the Bank of England, he said last week, if you could believe this, that Britons need to accept that they're poorer and workers and firms should stop trying to pass on rising costs by hiking prices and, oh, goodness me, demanding better wages. And I thought, excuse me, are you part of the bank which uh, failed to follow co-pilot Halligan's directive and raise interest rates, which might have spared us some of the pain which is now being borne by ordinary men and women and their families? I thought it was absolute sort of total arrogant tone deafness from that man, Hugh Pill. And I thought, well, if this is typical, so we are, aren't we? We are just subject now to this woeful group think. And, and just one other small thing I noticed this week with a couple of the US banks collapsing. And they were saying that at this particular Silicon Valley bank, Liam, that the head of risk management at SVB Bank spent time, quote, spearheading multiple woke LGBTQ programs, including safe spaces for coming out stories as the bank was heading towards the cliff. So I think it's okay to reflect on the calibre of the people taking these decisions. Is that right? I think that is right. I think the Bank of England is going to do very well to get out of this current stage of its history without some proper reforms. I mean, what I don't want to see is that the Bank of England loses its independence. The problem isn't that the Bank of England is independent. The problem is that the Bank of England isn't independent enough and it's become a kind of captive of the Treasury and it's become too embroiled in politics, wanging on about green issues. I mean, that was all under Mark Carney, completely ridiculous. You focus on central banking, you know, it's a pretty important thing. And so I'm concerned that if the Bank of England is reformed, the reforms go in precisely the wrong direction. This cost of living crisis is ongoing. It's completely clear that if we'd raised interest rates earlier, 
we wouldn't need to have raised them as much as we have. Looking at some of the price rises around now, the ONS, in fact, the Office of National Statistics, to their credit, have just released a shopping price comparison tool, lifting the lid on very, very granular inflation data, going right down to individual products, tins of beans, loaves of bread, and so on. It's pretty incredible, the price rises that we've seen. According to the ONS, this is an official number, sliced bread on average, white sliced bread is up 29% during the year to 2023, butter up 30%, baked (sighs) beans up 39%. These are eye-watering increases. And of course, the poor is hit hardest by these cost of living rises because they disproportionately spend more of their money on food and headline food price inflation is still above 19%. And within that, many items, as I've just demonstrated, are up a lot more than that. Look, this kind of, it sounds difficult, these technical subjects, everyone's sick of hearing about it, but this really is what drives politics. That's why I go back to the fact that if inflation does start falling, and I do think it will start falling quite soon, then I do think politics will shift and I do think we'll get more of a feel-good factor rather than a feel-bad factor. Just extending this groupthink idea, and of course we see it writ large, don't we, in the targets for net zero, totally irrational targets which are going to be almost impossible to meet and are going to cause hardship to large numbers of the population. You wrote a particularly good column this week, Liam, in the Sunday Telegraph, where you were talking about Sunak pulling the plug on the North Sea, watching the UK oil drain away in the face of these extraordinarily punitive taxes on oil, which even the net zero advocates admit we are going to require for quite some time after they say we won't need it. And you visited Aberdeen, didn't you? And were talking, were writing very, very well about the effect of ordinary men and women in Aberdeen. Indeed, at the peak of its production, the North Sea was producing over two and a half million barrels of oil a day, almost four percent of global production. It's now well under a million. But even the government-appointed body, the Climate Change Committee, the kind of key advocates of net zero, they acknowledge that we're going to be using oil and gas at least until the late 2030s, on the most sort of Panglossian (laughs) estimates. So if we are going to use oil and gas, oil and gas is still three quarters of the energy that we use in this country, and half of our oil and gas still comes from the North Sea. It surely makes sense if we are going to need oil and gas to use our own oil and gas, (laughs) because it's a lot less carbon intensive than relying on gas that's pumped in America or Qatar that's then turned into a liquid, stuck on a boat, cross thousands of miles of ocean, regasifying this LNG stuff. That makes us look nice in terms of our net zero targets. But of course, the actual amount of energy that's used is much, much more. Mm. Aberdeen is an incredible place. It is starting to focus more on renewables, wind farms and all the rest of it. But we still need to find a way to store that energy. We haven't really worked that out. We still need oil and gas for a long time to come. There are an awful lot of people's lives and livelihoods tied up with this industry. And with a windfall tax, 75% of profits are now taxed away, up from 40% just over a year ago. There is an investment strike happening in the North Sea. Almost no one is investing. Production will plummet even more. 
And that strikes me as completely short-sighted, given that we will still need oil and gas for years to come. Now on to our listener emails, the messages you send to us at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Please keep them coming. We absolutely love reading your thoughts and ideas and learn so much from you, as the co-pilot will point out. We've had a few, Liam, on the coronation. Alex says, Queen Elizabeth's model for monarchy worked because it was above the political fray and slightly out of date, a symbol of tradition, a constancy in a nation that has experienced rapid change, and she was not given to indulging the latest fashionable opinion. The late Queen generally commanded respect and loyalty, not least through dignified silence, constancy, hard work, being scrupulous in her impartiality and never complaining. Charles has got to understand that and embrace that model. It doesn't have to be a replica of Elizabeth's. There are areas where he can promote his own ideas about what's good for the nation, the prince's trust, his focus on conservation and restoration, for example, but he has got to steer well clear of anything that can be perceived as political. He needs to abandon this embarrassing obsession with being regarded as modern or progressive, both the antithesis of hereditary monarchy stretching back a thousand years. Above all, he should desire to be respected, not liked. I do worry that his ideal version of what it means to be king is a sort of Tony Blair winning his first election, enjoying popularity, being seen as a symbol of change and being wildly cheered on by all the right-thinking people. It won't happen, Charles, so give it up. And Michelle says on the same subject, I see the taking of the oath of homage as a bit of fun that allows folk to join in with the pomp. It doesn't really mean anything, so why not stand and chant in front of your telly? King Charles isn't 100% my cup of tea, as I've no truck with his eco-net-zero ways, but I wish him the best of luck, because I believe preservation of the monarchy is important, and the thought of President Starmer makes me want to chop off my own head and eat it. (laughs) Here, Michelle. (laughs) Now, our resident planet normal bard, the serial mug winner who goes by the name of Bob, is back, and this time he's reflecting... On the coronation, dear planet, normal rights, Bob, I think we should all swear an oath of allegiance to the blob. After all, that's what the king seems to have done, and we should follow his example. Thanks again for planet, normal rights, Bob, the podcast I absolutely swear by. So here it is, oath of allegiance by Bob. I swear allegiance to the blob that governs us today, controlling our behaviour and policing what we say. I embrace the latest wokery, the more extreme the better. I'll denounce all non-believers who don't follow it to the letter. I oppose all use of fossil fuels which threaten us with doom. I'll welcome every power cut as I shiver in the gloom. I apologise for my country, the most evil land on earth. I'll take the blame for any wrongs that it did before my birth. So let us all devote ourselves to grim self-flagellation and bow before the mighty blob that subjugates our nation. He's back. (laughs) That would be even funnier if it wasn't painfully true, wouldn't it, really? This is from Neil. Dear Alison and Liam, how tinnied can the Bank of England get? Hugh Pill, the chief economist you mentioned, now lecturing us that we have to expect to get poorer due to increased gas prices resulting from the war in Ukraine. We're buying expensive gas from overseas when we have millions of cubic feet of the stuff under the North Sea. 
Furthermore, the Bank of England denies that earlier action from them would have had little effect on current inflation rates. This is the bit I like. We need a campaign, writes Neil, to get Liam Halligan and Roger Bootle appointed pronto to the Monetary Policy Committee to save us. Roger, of course, is a Telegraph economics columnist as well. Maybe Alison too on the Monetary Policy Committee (laughs) with her newfound Vilma economic skills. (laughs) Up planet normal, says Neil. Best wishes. God bless you, Neil. (laughs) You know, I can't work out the change when I'm in Waitrose. I think me on the Monetary Policy Committee would be pushing it a bit. This is from Simon. I think, Liam, we've been discussing doing a Planet Normal special on housing because we have on the rocket uh, the United Kingdom's leading expert on housing. So if listeners have any thoughts about housing, the market, renting and so on, please do send them in. And this is from Simon. I felt compelled to write after reading Alison's column about extortionate rents in London, says Simon. I've had to grind with my now wife for years to get a foot on the ladder, and we could only do so with the help of family. We now have a six-month-old baby and are quickly outgrowing our one-bed ex-council fat, but the thought of saving up for another deposit is daunting. Probably it's our own fault for running an independent business with all the expense and stresses that go with that, usually waiting for large clients to pay us. But our personalities dictate that we are unable to work for bosses. And I believe that independent businesses are a good thing for our country. I agree that a lot of the rooms on offer in London are no better than slums. And the issue boils down to build to let landlords really loving money so much that they want to stick six people in a three room flat in bunk beds. All this leads to a traffic jam in the economy because renters are so desperate to make their rent with most of their salary that they perform adequately in jobs without wanting to take any risks. My wife and I want to have more kids, but we seem to live in a country that wants us to be units of production in an economic system rather than a family. We've both decided to raise our daughter as best we can without paying for childcare, as we think it's a daft idea for both of us to work in jobs just to pay for someone else to raise our child. Everything seems so insane, says Simon. In Hungary, they reward families who have four plus children with a break from income tax. What do we get for support here? 20 quid a week child benefit. Such a help, not... This is a huge generational problem and the solution rests in a bold government willing to take a risk. Here's hoping someone steps up to the plate to be a leader one of these days. I could not agree more, Simon. Families treated, parents treated as economic units of production and sod the experience of children growing up. It's a very, very bad, Liam. It's it's a terrible feature of our country. We have the most families in Europe where both parents are in full-time work. What does that do for children's happiness? And so that's it from Planet Normal for another week as we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reasoned views. Email of the week, it's my turn, and it has to be Simon on housing. Simon, good on you. I agree that independent businesses are a good thing for our country. So send us an email to planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk in the subject heading put mug winner and we will send you your rare as rocking horse poo Planet Normal mug. Everybody have a wonderful coronation weekend. God save the king. God bless him for all his frailties. If you enjoy Planet Normal, please do leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It does help other people to find us so the Planet Normal family can grow. And as we speed away from our beloved Planet Normal... And the madness of planet Earth comes back into view. Thanks as ever to our producers, Isabel Bouchard, Elliot Lampett and Louisa Wells and Cass Ho. 
Stay safe and in touch with us with each other until next week. It's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. 